Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Therapy Tales podcast with me, Don Walton, and Jess who was going to get a toasty. Yeah, but I'm hungry. Just sitting there musing on the world and haven't actually done. Did you order it on the app? <laughs> no, I haven't. It's okay. I could do that, couldn't I? Yeah, order it on the app. It's fine. It's fine. You'd be able to leap up and grab it and dash back before anybody even notices. So, where are we today? Starbucks. <laughs> where are we always? Starbucks. The dark side of the moon in the Starbucks. <laughs> yes. We're in the new Starbucks. There's lots of different ones. This is the nicest one. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I just, I'm just so used to, I'm conditioned to the, own, the old yeah. one. Yeah. Well, plus the manager of the old one is like... He's giving us free stuff. Gives us free stuff and it's dog crazy. I thought he fancied me. <laughs> Turns out he just likes dogs. He just really fancies your dog. <laughs> it's okay, he's just kidding. You actually got in trouble the other day, didn't you? Because you were in there without any dogs and he came up to you and he's like, where's the dogs? I did go in later. And but we did go in later, yeah, but he was off shift by then, so... Oh well, he's lost. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't listen to our podcasts. <laughs> well, if he does, he now knows he missed out on the puppies. I had, well, you had two and I, I had one I or something. Fancy me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if a man gives you attention a lot, he's going to go, what's, what's going on? Yeah, you just didn't realise that every time he gave you attention, you happened to have a dog right yeah. with you. Yeah, Fair yeah. Enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Really cute dogs as well. You'd thought you'd learn by now, right? Oh yeah, I'll get there eventually. They never shared that photo we took. They wanted to take a photo when we were in one Saturday, weren't we, with like loads of dogs. And they said, can we take a photo? We'll oh, give yeah. you all puppuccinos. So they brought like a tray of 13 puppuccinos. And uh, <laughs> they took a photo of all the dogs eating the puppuccino and then they never did anything with it. They're supposed to share it on their Instagram account, but they don't actually have an Instagram account. So I don't know how that was ever going to work. Can't get the staff. Anyway, what are we talking about, Jess, apart from Starbucks? Because that's two minutes in and we've just talked about Starbucks, so I'm not sure how interesting that is for our audience. <laughs> we're obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we're going to talk about you and your. Uh, how, how do you cope in life with going about feeling like generally I'm not loved in the world or I'm not good enough? How do you turn that off? <laughs> um, not necessarily very well all the time. Okay. <laughs> I have a unique advantage that most people don't have in that I recognised at an early age that I don't have to believe what my head tells me. So you get these memes, right, on Facebook that are like, listen to your inner voice. And then yeah. you're like, don't listen don't, to it. Don't, lying. <laughs> but there's going to be times where your, your subconscious, who's basically saying, for, for me, my subconscious is a little man, right? Oh, that's weird. Anyway, <laughs> I do what parts call, work sometimes with people. What, what are you? What do you call these little? There was a cartoon about them. They all, they're all doing different things in your body. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's various different ones. There's, there's one guy with levers in mind, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got he's pattern matching. Okay. But he's also a statistician, so he's taking all the information that's ever happened and going probability of this happening is this and this and this and this. He's, he's just really good at referencing, right? So he's not really smart. Oh, no, mine is definitely smart. No, he's not really smart, sorry and all that, but you're going to have to come, up, come to terms with this. He's just really good at referencing. So the best way to describe it at the moment, I find, is imagine that you needed to learn about trees, right? And it's really important that you learn about trees because you want to know if the thing that you've just eaten was going to kill you. 
Now, if you had to get a book about trees, search through it, try and find a match and do all of that sort of stuff, there's every chance you'd be dead before you got to the right page in your book. Why are we dead? What happened? <laughs> what the heck? However, if you've got an index that are says... eating the tree? Go, go to bed. Yeah, we are at this point. I, I don't know. The, I, I used the worst... In the talk that I did at the, the Perth High School, I used a worse example, and I'm not sure. So I'm like, imagine that somebody just walks in here who's about to attack me. But I wasn't able to remember that this was a person that was about to attack me, then there's more chance I'd end up dead because the person attacked me. But it would be really cool if I had a really easily accessible reference book that said, go to page 54, everything about him is on page 54. And I went, all oh, right, okay. And I could react straight away and, and like attack him before he attacked me or something like that. I'm like, that's not a good example either, right? So as you listen, you might find a better example. But the idea is, if you're faced in the moment with something that is a risk to you, and you have to take the time to think about it, consider all the possible opportunities, look for all the pattern matching information that you might have in your life to make a full and complete decision about whether that thing's gonna be a risk to you, then it's likely to have killed you before you've been able to make the decision. Yes. So what you need is, is a way of quickly, Jess is skiing by the way, just in case you wanna know what Jess looks like while she's doing this. It's basically like Google but not as wide. It's only things it that happen to you in your life. You're it very is. specific. <coughs> I think of it like a book with index. If you had to flick through all the pages in the book to find it, it would take you forever. If you could go to the index page and go page 54, you'll find it really quickly. But if I come along and tear out page 54, you can look it up, but then nothing. you can't do anything with it. Is that what you do? Do you tear out the pages? Yeah, I tear out the pages. So this is going to be called um, Don and Jess's version of the subconscious, this episode, right? Is that what it's going to be called? <laughs> That's a really catchy title. I'm sure it'll really stand out. So yeah. you, you tear out number 55 of the rule book. It was page 54. Where did you get to page 55 from? Honestly, nobody listens. <laughs> <laughs> I essentially, yeah, so it's the rule book. So it, again, it's not what happens, it's the meaning, right? So it's only in the book because your brain needed to remember that particular thing. It's not everything that's in the book, just the things you need to remember. And then it indexes it. We, we read something and it was talking about pruning. Do you remember? There was, yes, and, and, synaptic pruning. Yeah, and that's really cool because what happens when you hit adolescence is that's exactly what your brain does. It goes, way too much information, no point keeping all of this. I'll just get rid of a load of stuff and keep the stuff that I really need to keep. So it does a pruning process, but it has to have some set of rules, an algorithm to decide what to keep and what not to keep. But it also then has to have a way of getting at it really quickly because it's pointless having all this information and not being able to get at it. And the problem is the algorithm was given to you by other people. The algorithm is a primitive one based on whether the tiger will kill you or not. And that's the thing. So the algorithm is based on, is this going to hurt me? Because if it's going to hurt me, I'm going to remember it and try and avoid it for the rest of my life. But the experiences are, are from other adult humans yes. that we sh they should know better. Interpretation. It's our interpretation. So it's not about bad or good experiences. It's about your brain deciding that that was a bad experience. And then, because it's decided it was bad, it's locked it in so that you can avoid that experience for the rest okay, of your life. Okay, so I don't want to get too close to the bone, but imagine... Imagine a kid who's been subjected to sexual abuse, so they can't understand what it is. I don't want to get too close to the bone, but I'm going to go straight for the most tricky subject. How about, <laughs> Jess, um, rather than getting too close to the bone, we talk about the thing that we did that was the memory that came up for me before you went on the West Highland Way. Right. Okay. Um, because 
we were talking about issues with um, feeling good enough, feeling that um, what I do works, and all that sort of stuff. Right? We were, we were talking. We had some subject, and and Jess, who is you know trainee therapist, Jess went. So where does that come from, Dawn? If you could think of a time, <laughs> like here she goes. Um, and there was a memory that comes up, which I've, I've, it's not an unfamiliar memory to me. And it was a memory where um, I grew up on a chicken farm, me and my brother, who is nearly two years older than me. And we had the cottage that was part of the farm, the bungalow that we lived on. And my dad was the manager of the farm, so we lived on the farm. And behind the cottage was a big mound that was obviously where they dug out all the stuff to make the sheds. So you had all the sheds. You had like eight sheds or something. With the By the way, in my memory of your childhood, it's like Hillbillyville. Okay, with well... With like corrugated tin roofs and like dry land. Okay, so this was a fairly modern looking bungalow. <laughs> it was painted white. There was a sand pit in the back garden. And you're wearing dungarees and... <laughs> mm. No, no, that's not how it was. <laughs> These big chicken sheds that you would get um, with like thousands of chickens in them, not, not good really. Um, bags of dead chickens at the end of the lane every day, also not good. But things you get used to when you live on a farm, right? Anyway, so there's this big mound, not hillbilly, not, you know, any of that stuff, dungarees and bits of straw hanging out my mouth or anything. However, um, this was obviously a pile of dirt at one point and had just grown over. And what it's grown over with is really tall dock leaves. And me and my brother used to kind of make mazes in them and used to play on the top of the dock leaves. And one day, my brother had an interesting relationship with me. I was quite annoying to him. So every now and again, you know, I had to follow his rules of play. I was allowed to do what he told me we could do. And obviously, I'd done something that pissed him off on this particular day. As the elder sibling, I can totally understand. I know you can totally understand that. You're like, I don't know the same thing, actually. Um, <laughs> so this particular day, he pushed me down the hill. Now, all around the hill was nettles. So the surrounding area of the hill was nettles, the top of the hill was dock leaves. Um, which would be great, because the dock leaves will help with the sting of the nettles, but, you know, on this case, I rolled down the hill face first, you know, the long lengthways like you do when you're playing the rolling down the grass game. I rolled down, facing the nettles, all the way down to the bottom. Which, funnily enough, hurt. <laughs> so I went running back to the cottage. Now, I'm not sure how old I was, but at this point I was living with my stepmother. And before that I'd been living with my mother and my father. So in the same place. So I was learning new rules of engagement. So if I'd gone running to my mother and said, he pushed me down the hill and I got stung, she'd have given me a hug and she'd have comforted me. Okay. So I ran to my stepmother, looking for, that. To, looking for that, and what my stepmother did is she hit me and told me to stop crying, which was a bit of a shock to the system. So we were talking about this memory, so this isn't a particularly upsetting memory for me, um, but it did teach me a really important lesson, one which is don't cry, it's, you're not supposed to cry, and two was, um, it doesn't matter what you say, you don't have a right to complain or say there's anything wrong. So it taught me, it was one of the first lessons that my opinion doesn't matter, or what's going on with me doesn't matter. So I was expecting a hug and my brother to be told off, and what I got was hit and told to stop making a fuss, basically. So, so this is a memory. Um, if you asked my brother, did he remember that, he either wouldn't remember it, or if he did remember, he'd remember it in a very different way. It wouldn't have any of that because it only had meaning to me, not to him. So my brain has learnt from that 
use that as a very important index point that it can use for the rest of my life if I'm making a decision on how to interact with something to go, shut up, stop talking, you, shouldn't, you don't have a right to your opinion. Um, and that's why memories are neither false nor true, right? It's only the ones that have got meaning and got risk in them that our brains hold on to. And then as we get older, what happens is they're validated by the next experience, the next experience. So I'm like upside down pyramid at the bottom is this. On the scale of what happened in my childhood, that was relatively insignificant, right? It was a really small incident, but it created the rule. And that rule became indexed with all these other validating, reinforcing examples. So that by the time I'm actually having to follow the rule as an adult, it's rock solid evidence based and absolutely true. And, and I don't even recognize it. I didn't even recognize that that would be the basis. There's other memories that I have that I thought were the basis of that. So on the basis that it's neither true nor false, it doesn't serve us to keep that memory as it was. Now, I don't want my brain to reference it in the index because I'm not a kid anymore and it was a factor of having an alcoholic issue stepmother and it wasn't an appropriate response to her and it was nothing to do with me. So for me to learn in my rule book about her bad behaviour seems a little unfair on me for the rest of my life. Which means that we have an opportunity to change a memory like that. So what we need to do is we need to change it so there is no hurt in it. So it's ridiculous because your brain only learns from things that hurt, not from things that are silly. So then we had our interesting conversation about how we make it silly. And I made the mistake of referencing a dog. <laughs> I say made the mistake because my, uh, my stepmother had, um, was into Irish setters or something like that. And I really remember clearly we had one of these 70s style kind of corrugated glass cabinets in the kitchen and it had this sticker on it sort that you might have got on cars or something and it was an Irish setter's head and it was a kind of black and white sticker on it so um, as Jess was trying to prompt me to change what happened I talked about the Irish setter so now she's got like a dog <laughs> so Jess went off in dog world <laughs> thinking about dogs and all that sort of stuff <laughs> So I ended up with this kind of Irish setter sat in front of me um, at one point and going, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> How does that change anything? <laughs> and just like, we could put an e-collar on it. That's, that's not the point. <laughs> we put an e-collar on the Irish setter. What we need to do is we need to take the emotion out of it and make it just silly. I can't even remember what we did. To eventually, we ended up with like cuddling it or something. I, I don't know. what. Do you remember what we did? I can't remember what we did with the eventual change in the memory. But the thing is, you, you can't unchange something like that. So every time I think of the memory, actually what I think of now is me going back and finding an Irish setter sat in front of me, which was a bit confusing, to be honest with you, <laughs> as opposed to um, hurtful and upsetting because an Irish setter couldn't even slap me across the head, you know, because it's got paws. <laughs> And by doing that, your brain can only hold on to stuff. It, it breaks the index because your brain goes, okay, this is just like that time where an Irish setter was sat in front of you. What am I actually supposed to do with that information? And it doesn't switch off and lead you to the next reaction stage. So, so we all have moments like that and we all have lots of moments like that and we have this massive index situation in our brain. So, um, that was a memory of yours that you're feeling um, that 
obviously it wasn't very smooth and that you felt like crying was not an option. Yeah, don't you, don't, cry. you don't do crying. And also that your opinion doesn't matter, that um, yeah. even though you were sad and upset and hurt, you shouldn't be talking about that. No. So that's one moment that's created in time. And now that we've broken that link, do we find other ones, so other examples that you can think of where you feel like you shouldn't have spoken out? Yes. Um, so when you do stuff like this, um, what your goal is is to find the earliest moment because that starts the chain reaction. So the others are built on that and indexed to that first moment. Um, so whenever you do something where you find a memory, what I always do is I go, I look for any other memories connected to it, and I look for particularly is there something earlier that we also need to go back to that started before that one. But if there's not one earlier, I'll go to a later one and I'll bring the learning forward. So one of the things that um, is really hard to do is talk when there's a screaming child running up and down Starbucks. Um, one of the things that's really hard to do is the minute you start talking about a memory that's got meaning and emotion, mm -hmm. you lose your thinking brain, right? So it's very hard to do this yourself because you're not logical and rational anymore because you're now experiencing that moment. You go back there, you time travel to it. So you need an external guide to help you. And the other thing that I find is helpful to do is to allow that younger version of you to feel safe enough to let the adults have a conversation about it. And if you're feeling really freaked out and really upset, it's going to be hard to get close to it, right? So I always try and set something up to make my clients feel safe. And you can use things like a blanket, you can use bubble wrap or an invisibility cloak or a dog or a trusted person that is there giving you a hug. The challenge we have whenever we do anything like that is I just don't literally don't have anything that makes me feel safe. So we have to rely on my therapy brain to keep us true when we're doing it. But um, what you can do then is once you've established a technical term is essentially an anchor for it, uh, a safe anchor, then you can take that into the next memory you go to. And before you do anything with the memory, you make them safe. Now, as you do this with repeated memories, that safe anchor also gains the qualities that you've learned. It's not about you, it's not about love, it's not about time travel. Yeah, I get that you're reinforcing um, that feeling, right? That, that safe feeling, and that's super important. Um, what I find a, a phenomenon, phenomenon, Phenomenal. 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 Now you're what? never going to be able to get that out of your head the rest of the day, or however long it is. The rest of my life. You're um, all going to be going phenomenal. The, <laughs> what I find fascinating about this is that the, the emotion behind the memory can be reinforced. So somebody who's, and I've seen this, I've witnessed this in, in military vets that have um, gone to therapy week after week and, and I've you know been around them and seen that they come back with that uh, that emotion reinforced because they talked about the memory and then again and again and again so, and surely the brain can only take so much of that before it goes bang yeah so every time you bring some memory forward 
right? So I'm a visual person, so my hands are doing all sorts of things. So I'm imagining we take the memory out and we bring it forward, right? So I've got my memory sitting in my hand here. And, you know, it might be a little dawn or something like that. And then what happens is you give me your opinion on it, right? So I also have Jess's reaction to me talking about an Irish setter in my head now, by the way, because of it was so funny um, talking about what we were going to do to this well, Irish I think setter. I remember it being black and white and then going, why is it black and white? Yeah, yeah, you had the whole confusion thing about black and white because you were just assuming you was... thought it was a red, like, well, it's not an Irish setter. So you'd gone off on dogland and I'm like here, luckily, because I'm still here as an adult because my memory's there, but I'm still here going, oh my God, Jess has gone off on one. But when we put that memory back, it now has all of that in it. It has you going off on and on in it. So the memory has permanently updated. So the opposite of that would be if I was mortified or yes. emotionally upset by that as well. So the best example of this is um, a story about eating an apple. So um, when I was young, we were starved. We were starved because my stepmother didn't care about looking after us, not because we were poor. And so when I ate an apple, I ate the whole thing except the stalk, right? Every single last bit of the apple, I ate it. In fact, I kind of hoped that it was true what people said, which is the pips will grow a tree in your stomach, because I thought that'd be quite cool. Somebody's car alarm's going off. Not mine. Um, so I thought that was true, because it's quite nice to have an apple tree in my stomach, because that would help me get fed, right? So when I ate an apple, I ate a whole apple. So you were aware that you were hungry? Yes, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Was, starved, sorry. Yeah. I don't mean hungry, I meant yeah. you were aware that you weren't getting enough food. Yes, and you know... Did you ask for more food? Because you were young at this point. No, you wouldn't ask for anything because you got hit. So you didn't talk, you didn't ask, you just did what you were told. And um, so when I used to go for school dinners, the dinner ladies knew that we were starving and would stand there with a vat of custard and give us extras. And I remember once me and my brother sitting in the, the canteen with a vat of custard next to us, which is why I love custard so much. And the dinner ladies just literally, I think we had four or five bowls each, and they just kept scooping the custard. So it was known that we were starved. Um, but when I ate an apple, I ate the whole apple. And nobody at the school like went to the SSP... No, that's not right. SSPCA. <laughs> you are too dog obsessed. You really are. I wasn't a dog. I was a human NSPC, child. NSPC, no, um, I don't think they were as big then. Social services were involved, right. but nobody did anything. Um, it was they knew we were covered in bruises. They knew we were skeletally thin. Nobody did anything. Um, just the way of it. So, um, as an adult, one day a friend of mine said, "Do you want an apple?" And I said, "No, I don't eat apples." And she went, "How? How come you don't eat apples?" And I went, "Well." There was a time when I was a kid where I bit into the apple and I saw half a worm. And, and she went, ooh, and, and probably most of you, when you're listening, just kind of gagged and thought that's disgusting. Which seems a really reasonable response when you bite into an apple and see half a worm. As I remember, what I did was I went, oh, there's half a worm in my apple, spat out what was in my mouth, ate around it because I wasn't going to waste a good apple, and then finished it. But... My friend's reaction made me question my memory because that makes more sense to be disgusted at it. So next time I thought of eating an apple, now I thought not only of eating the apple, but my friend's disgusted face when I ate the apple. Now, it didn't serve me to not eat apples. I wanted to eat apples. And so what I did was I reimagined the memory so that I found a jelly worm. You know one of the red and green ones? Which would have been really cool, right? So I bit into my apple and I found half a jelly worm in my apple, which was like... What a result, right? Now, I've talked about this enough, but now when I think of eating an apple, I actually can visualise the jelly worm far more than I could visualise the original worm that I found in the apple. None of it's true. I don't know which bit's true. I don't know what I remember. But all I know is it serves me more to remember a jelly worm in my apple than it remembers anything else. 
And every time you talk about something, this happens, right? So every time you bring something forward, somebody else will tell you what they think. Now, if you see a psychologist, they will ask you questions and get you to give you different insight. And you might kind of go, oh, man, I'd not thought about it that way. And I realize that's what it's like. And now what happens is you put the memory back and it's bigger, right? And all of these other things are triggered from it. Every time you think about it, it's like, bang, this really big memory. And then you talk about it and you think about it more and you add to it and you add to it. So most of us, when we talk about memories, even if we're talking with friends, we're adding to it and we're storing it back bigger. And if it's something that's a trigger, that's not a good idea. So the best way to do is store it back smaller, to be deliberate, to always be deliberate about changing it so it's not stored back as big. So if you change even the color of a wallpaper in a memory, then the way your brain works is it goes, well, if that wasn't that color, then that can't be true, and that can't be true, and the structure collapses because everything's built on structures, not absolute data. So if you change some detail, then the structure collapses. If you reinforce the detail, the structure's like bang on there, front and center. But if you change one of the details, the index gets broken, and then next time your brain tries to reference it, it can't find anything to hold on to, and it doesn't switch your brain off. But you think it's hard to do on your own? It's really hard because most of us get hijacked emotionally. emotionally, and when you're emotional, you're not logical. So it can be really hard to reframe a memory that's your own memory. It can be really hard to know what to do with it. So, so when I talk to people, and I, you know, if I ask them if they could change it, what would they change it to? Most people go, I don't know, because they're in the memory and they're already experiencing emotion. So if it's a person's voice, I will give them suggestions. How would they sound if they sounded like Donald Duck? Or like they breathed in a helium balloon? Or like a minion? Or Mickey Mouse? These are the most popular ones that people choose. Sometimes people choose something different. Sometimes they go high-pitched or low-pitched or something like that. So if you could think of that person saying exactly the same thing, but saying it with a silly voice, which silly voice would work for you? And if you give somebody a range of options, they'll usually choose another one that you haven't given them, but it gives them a space to be able to safely choose something. And so but how, how severe can we go? So if it was like child uh, physical abuse and the kid's getting hit and you turn the character into Donald Duck, right, that's hitting them with a wing or something, um, you know, in a funny voice, that's changing the, the emotion behind it, but not necessarily the physical pain and, and the... Yeah. The, the, the danger of you should probably avoid that person in the future. Yeah, so you don't learn from being hit. There's, there's no lesson for the future about being hit. You might learn to duck better, for example. So it's okay to kind of change that to make it... Well, no, no, it's not even that. So um, the thing that gets stored in your brain is not going to be the being hit. Yeah. It's going to be the words that were said while you were hit. The words are the ones with the meaning, not the being hit. And we, we can deal with horrific stuff really well. Okay. Pain goes away, hurt goes away, broken things go away, they heal. Um, words have meaning that our brain holds on to so we can avoid that situation in the future. So none of the memories that I have, well, there's one, but... Most of the memories I have um, are not about the being hit part. So the memory that we just talked about with the Hill of Nettles, it wasn't that she hit me, it was that she hit me for crying. It was the crying that was a problem, not the being hit. I don't really remember, we don't remember pain. We, we can remember that we were in pain or we struggled, but we don't actually remember the pain itself. It's of no value. So our brains deal with horrific stuff really well. 
it's the meaning that causes the problem, the smaller, more subtle things that happen when your brain isn't capable of okay, understanding. Okay, so my, my question changes, right? So um, in that specific memory, um, now that we've muddled it up and, and we've got Jess thinking about dogs and black and white colours and all sorts, right? Um, the meaning is still there for you in your life that crying is not a good thing. Um, there are multiple things around crying. That was one of them. Um, and we'd probably need to jump on a few of the other ones and just make sure they got so changed in the same way. Earlier memories related mm, to crying? Yeah, all around the same time. Um, but in, in terms of the original question, you might find there is a memory that's too emotionally intensive for you to be able to do any sort of cognitive reframing. I can't possibly imagine the person with a silly voice because I'm still too upset by what was being said. I, I, that's ridiculous. I can't change it because it was obviously true. You know, something, those are traumatic memories. Traumatic memories are ones where you actually haven't been able to get meaning at all, but you've had to remember it because it was so risky to you. And the problem with no meaning at all is you have to respond to it, but you don't have an algorithm. You don't have something that is safe and isn't safe. It's not safe when I'm in this situation. I'm safe when I'm not in this situation. If you've not been able to learn from it, then everything's unsafe. You just have to treat everything as a risky. So, so traumatic memories are ones where you haven't been able to learn, but there's been an intense emotion. And that really causes us a problem. And you won't be able to do a talky reframe. The person probably wouldn't even be able to tell you what that memory was and be able to talk through succinctly. And they definitely wouldn't be able to go, oh, I'm just going to make that person seem really silly. Just doesn't work that way. Um, so those you do differently. You still mess with it, but you do, you do it in a different way. But the other memories, there's um, multiple linked memories. There's a memory of um, coughing, coughing in my room. And it probably was somewhere around the same age because it was an age where I used to share a room with my brother. And um, she came in and hit me for coughing because I was making too much noise. And it's really hard not to cough. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to cough. And it, it's, um, it's that whole thing of not coughing. And, and by that stage, I'd already learned not to cry. So if I did cry, I'd have my head under my pillow. I mean, they used to have raging arguments through the night and it used to upset me, but I just learned not to cry about it. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of... So emotion's still there. It's just that there's no way to express it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not okay to express it. So you don't express it. So... Um, and that's just a conditioned response, essentially, at the end of the day. I can sit here and say, of course, that's not true, and I would have done something different, and you know, I would never have done that with my kid, but at the end of the day, my brain remembers that because it thinks it's an important thing to make sure I don't get in trouble for again. And the problem that we have when we're changing my stuff is um, I don't have a pink fluffy blanket or an invisibility cloak that we put around me that I can carry from one memory to another because I can't think of the concept of feeling safe in any way, shape or form. So it makes it a bit trickier for some of my stuff than it might be for most of my clients. Most people can think of something. And even if it's, as I say, a trusted person, it doesn't have to be an alive person. I've had people who choose angels who are wrapped around them. I've had people who choose a pet dog. You've got nothing like that. You don't have anything that makes you feel like... I, I probably do somewhere, but it was so systematic in so many different ways. It's really hard for me to find a point. In fact, when my first therapy session, um, one of the things uh, Trevor tried to do was um, think of a happy time in your life. I, I just couldn't think of anything. 
I just could not think of a happy time in my life. And, and that makes it really tricky because most people have something that you can latch on to and then you can do a kind of before and after thing. And it's <coughs> kind of hard for me to find that. And you don't have any very, very early memories of toys or anything that you had? It's really annoying. I don't have um, the early memories from the first four years or so, which to all accounts were really loving and nurturing and we can believe that's true because I don't think I'd be the person I was I am now if I hadn't had a good start in life. Um, my cousin remembers it, my brother remembers it because he's two years older than me. I don't remember it from you me. Don't remember him. Hmm? You don't remember him? I don't even remember him, no. No, I see photos and my cousin was like, oh you were looking up at him and he was dead shy and you were telling him just smile and all this sort of stuff. I was confident, I don't remember that at all. I do not have that version of myself in my head at all. And I was too young. Uh, memories, you very rarely have memories from that young. And, and how do you feel about taking um, the older version of yourself and having that person as being safe? The, because I, the older person wants to help the younger. Yeah, it doesn't though. It's not, It's there is no version of me that... No it, purpose version, right? Not a version I can trust. Well, I know it's like screwed up. <laughs> it's challenging. It's, it it makes it more challenging to work with me. But I've been very lucky over the years. I've always had people around me who are willing to um, risk it and take the challenges. I guess what you do is you create a symbol of safety. Then, yeah. What what means safety? It's really hard for me. It's the same way as what means happy, what means... The, the, like if you could take something with you into um, a burning building to try and help, <laughs> what would you take? I would take a super, like, fireproof suit, obviously. There you go. See, now you're wearing a fireproof suit. <laughs> it wouldn't really help me when my stepmother's telling me off, but hey, you know, it stopped me burning. She's going to have hot hands. <laughs> See, this is what happened with the dog thing. It was just like, we'll stick an e-collar on the dog, we'll do this for the dog. It's like, what are you doing at the damn dog? It's not about the dog. Why are you mortified by my stepmother's behaviour when Jess is like going through a crisis like, about the fact that I shouldn't have mentioned a dog. Center. If I said anything other than a dog, we'd have still had Jess in the room with me, but no, I talked about dogs and off she went. <laughs> but this is the really hard thing. It's like if you're trying to help somebody, so if you're having a conversation with a friend and they're triggered in some way, shape or form, what we tend to do is we tend to try and reassure them everything's okay, but it's not because they're in that space in their head. So you can't do that. Uh, we'd, we do the same with kids if they're having a nightmare or something, if they're scared of something. It's okay, it's safe, don't worry, I'm here or whatever. It's not. It, it's not safe. They are scared. You need to address where they are, not bring them into your world. You need to go into their world with it. And that's really hard to do because... You're really well practiced in that though, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So what you, like, and I guess I do that with dogs, so I... Um... I can feel or I can see how the dog's perspective is. Mm. Whereas with the with human therapy stuff, it's harder for me to, to not suggest. It is. Because I'm not trained in how other people see that emotion. You're also a problem solver. And the hardest thing to do, and I'm a visual analytical person, right? So when somebody says to me, um, this happened, and I'm thinking, how could I change it? I have a million different ideas about how to change their memory, so it's silly. But those are my ideas, not theirs. So what I need to do is I need to help them find their version. Now, most people will struggle because they feel awkward. They feel 
don't really know how it's supposed to work. Most people, if you just ask them cold to change a memory so it's ridiculous, will have no idea where to start. So I will almost always suggest something. To, um, so if I had somebody with a fear of being sick, for example, I've had people who we've changed the memory where it was slime coming out of their mouth, which was funny to the person because they were into slime. I've had other people with bubbles popping out of their mouth and like no kid doesn't like bubbles, you know, chasing bubbles or um, I, I, I do silly things like that. But usually what I do is I suggest multiple things and then they pick something else because now they get a feel for what they're supposed to do. Some people uh, work better with sounds. If you've got a person's voice that's affected you, changing the voice is the easiest thing. The most common ones are Donald Duck, Helium Balloon, and Mickey Mouse. Those are the ones that people find easiest to imagine as a silly voice. But somebody might have a robot or something like that. That's fine. If that works for them, go with it. But yeah, the trick is to know I have to change something. I have to change enough to make it a bit silly and anything I change will fundamentally break the indexing on the brain because if that first node memory is not true then all the things that are built only because of it also become untrue so that's the job and you can't I can't do it wrong I can either not change it or I can change it I can't make it worse because I'm not doing that, oh, hon, I'm sorry to hear that, oh, that must have been terrible for you, or, gosh, that's the most traumatic thing I've ever heard, and bursting into tears, which is... Surely, if you were to say that as a psychologist to a client, that's the worst thing I've ever heard, but you're not only reinforcing that, you're updating the memory with, that's even worse than I thought it was. A hundred percent. So I have had clients come to me and go, I have spoken to X number of psychologists, the last one burst into tears and said, I should write a book because that's the worst trauma they've ever heard of. And I've said, I don't really need to know what the trauma is. You're just, you're just going to do what I tell you to do. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, you don't need to tell me. You can tell so me if you want to tell me. I kind of understand now, several years on. <laughs> <laughs> I understand now why you say things like I don't care. Because by being neutral and um, not giving any emotion yourself to the the cause or the interpretation of their brain, yeah. what you're doing is you're making it a non-thing yeah. rather than giving any emotion of sadness or... Um, yeah, I'm not adding to it. I'm deliberately not adding to it. And actually, it's not relevant to me. It's not but one I, of my I memories. found you initially with that, well, not with me, um, because we didn't really do anything like, like work like that, but with people that you said, I, really, I don't really care, it doesn't really matter. I was... It's like very untherapisty. It is very untherapisty. <laughs> I get it now. Yes, yes, it is because it is not my stuff. It is their stuff. But it's so important to remain. And I think really? that um, part of our, our compassion training from a young age is to, is to recognise and empathise with that when they're purging yes um, to give that feedback but actually it's maybe not good to it's do not, that <laughs> it's not it's not great um so you can listen and you can actually hear somebody without engaging in their world and and you will be a far better listener if you don't do ooh, ooh me i had this i know what this is like because if you do that you're going to add to their stuff and you're going to add based on their interpretation they will take what their brain takes from what you say and add to it and you have no control over it. So yeah, you remain neutral, you hear, and you know you can change it, but you need to give them guidance. You are purely a guide to help them change themselves. And so 
people worry about um, triggering negative emotions, triggering states, and it's like you don't have to worry because you're not creating anything that isn't there all the time already, and you're bringing it forward. So I do a trauma clearing thing, and the very worst part of the trauma clearing thing is in order to clear it, I need it front and center in their brain. So the first two minutes max of my trauma clearing process is horrible because they have to look right at the thing I, they don't want to look at. Like, they don't have to talk to me about it. There's no value in them talking to me about it because we're going to change it anyway. But they have to look at it. And, and that's really hard for me as a caring person to make a client look at a thing that is very upsetting to them. Um, but the really cool thing is, within minutes, it's going to stop being upsetting to them and I'm going to see a very different person in front of me. If I was able to take photos of the before and after in a five-minute spell, it is it in their face. amazing, amazing the difference. It's like mind-blowing to me. It's so cool. So I don't have to worry about bringing this stuff forward. I'm not creating it. It was there anyway. That's why they're talking to me because it's causing a problem. And I know 100% I'm going to change it. Even if what I do doesn't work in the best way possible, I'm still changing it. And I'm not changing it by going, oh, Han, I'm really sorry, and that, that sucks, and that sounds like one of the worst things I've ever heard, and shedding a tear because it just, you know, I feel so sorry for them. I'm going to change it by kind of going, okay, I'm just going to mess with the way it's stored. Brain hack. It is brain hacking. It's brain reprogramming. It's, our brains are physically store things. They physically store things. This is why something like the EMDR works so well, the eye movement desensitization, I always forget the R, um, that's used with veterans with PTSD. Because we physically have it stored in a certain place in the brain. And if you move it, or you overlay it with something, the indexing is broken. <laughs> you can't get at it again. And it stops being a problem. And it sounds stupidly simple for something that affects so much of your life but it really is it's just changing your brain so it doesn't really matter what why scale of things what matters is we can change it and it's good to know that so whether you're having a chat with a friend and they're offloading on you and they're getting really upset and you're just feeling really terrible for them or whether somebody's experienced something really traumatic it's theirs they own it it's, oh, it's unique to them, no matter what the scale is. It's unique to them. And like with the, the thing with my stepmother, the thing that was the problem was not that she hit me. She hit me far worse at later times. It wasn't the hitting that was the problem. It was the fact that the shock, because I wasn't expecting to be hit, I was expecting a different response, and it coming with the words that said, stop crying and stop making a fuss. That was the meaning. Whereas if you, if you describe it to somebody else, They'd be trying to reframe it so that it wasn't the hitting. It, I can't change that I was hit. I can't change that I was pushed down the hill of metals. But I can change the meaning so that my brain isn't using it in the future for any reference points. So if you're talking to somebody, you want to change the meaning, not what happened. You can't change what happened. But nothing you remember is true. And nothing you remember is false. So people say, I'm not sure if this has really happened. Like, if you remember it, of the millions of things that your brain can hold on to, but it's holding on to that one, there's a reason. So let's just treat it as true and change it. I think it scares people, you know, it scares people to, to do stuff messing with memory because we have this amazing respect for memories, like true and false memories, this concept of true and false memories. It's not true. Yeah, where has that come from? It's very strange because at the same time as culturally we are dependent on memories, we're also not very good at being in the moment. No. 
Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Your brain switched off, so you're not in the moment. So the goal is to get back in the moment, not to stop your brain switching off, because that's not going to happen. We've got all these memories. You never know when a memory is going to be triggered. You, you see somebody and the face reminds you of somebody. You smell something and it reminds you. I was, um, I was in the Marks and Spencer food hall earlier, and somebody had the same perfume or something as my cousin. And it just reminded me of the last time I was at her house, you know, I just had a little smile to myself and I was thinking of her and I was thinking of other memories that we had when we did stuff when I was younger. And it was just this nice little journey that I went on. You know, it's fine, you're not going to stop that. But if it takes me on not so nice journey, it's recognizing that there's something getting in the way and that if it is causing me a problem, I can change it. If it's not causing me a problem, I can just live my life with that thing. There's no amount of therapy that's going to clear all that stuff because you're not going to be a blank slate ever. <laughs> it just can't be. You've got to have some rules of engagement in life. You've got to have our quirks, right? <laughs> our weirdnesses. Yes. But, um, as Gabor Mati says, it's finding the ability to be and be at ease with yourself. Yeah. In the, in the quiet moments. Yeah. It's, it's a really, you know, and that depends on the scale of what you've been through as to how able you are to do this. So we hear lots, there's so much talk about mental health these days. You hear lots of talk about mindfulness, being present, affirmations, all of these tools and things. And we can feel really bad if we don't do them, right? You're not helping yourself do things, self-care. All the work mental health week stuff was about exercise more, sleep better. It's like, great, Ash was um, working through some stuff for their mental health and it was like exercise more get better sleep and like, yeah great thanks for that any tips on how to actually get better sleep and you know teenagers don't tend to sleep well they tend to get up at three o'clock in the morning and cook meals and they tend to have messy rooms and things like that that's a teenage thing because of teenage brain development there was a, a thing i read about um teenage brain doesn't know when it's tired in the same way as an adult brain knows teenage brain doesn't know it's drunk in the same way there's an adult brain knows. There's all these things that are just brain development. So if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. It just means it doesn't work for you. So there are different approaches to being mindful other than connecting with your body. Uh, sometimes connecting with your body doesn't work particularly well and is not a very mindful state. There is focus on something external. So we have trees outside the window. I could look at the bark on a tree and I could really zoom in on the bark on a tree. And then when my brain drifts again, I could come back to the bark. I could just bring myself back to the bark on the tree. That's mindful. That's being present. It's allowing things to drift, coming back and focusing on that. One of my favorite tricks is um, when I used to go running, I used to, it's typical for me to do running. I'm not a very good runner and I'm not very good at getting out of breath on stuff. So I try and do stuff that doesn't get me out of breath. But it's actually really good for me to do running because my mind and body is so damn occupied with not dying that my thinking brain has loads of free space to think whatever I want to. So I have the best thoughts when I'm doing something like that. But if I get too close to the wire, I'm feeling too exhausted, I need to use brain tricks to keep myself going. And one of the brain tricks is to imagine that you have a tiny little ball bearing in your big toe. And as a sensation, we can create sensation. It's really easy for us to imagine a sensation. You can focus on any part of your body and imagine a sensation in it. <coughs> so if you imagine there's a tiny little ball bearing, that sensation of that in your big toe, and then you try and move it, 
up the toe and up to the other toe takes quite a lot of concentration. And know those little magnet games where you had a magnetic wand and you tried to pick up the, the magnetic thing and then you drop it and you have to go back. It's kind of like that. The effort it takes to pick that up and keep moving it is very distracting. That's mindfulness. That's mindfulness in a slightly different way to the other ways of doing it. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm coughing. So um, I think if we recognize the uniqueness of us, then we can find things that work for us. And if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It just means it's not fitting your model. But the principle is, come back to the present, be here and now. Because here and now is where all the really cool stuff happens. So the more you can bring yourself back to now, the better. The quicker you can bring yourself back to now, the better. So it's perfectly okay to be taken out of the moment, to have a smell, to have a sensation, to have a memory. But it's in the past, so how do I get myself back into the present and then carry on? And if it happens too often, I need to stop myself getting switched off. And then I can be more present. And that's what we were talking about with Jessie. She can be present enough to go, my dog has a need and I need to meet it by taking my sock off and throwing it in his mouth. That's a present state thing as opposed to, oh my God, oh my God, what's going to happen if, and he'll might bite me, and I, I need to avoid, and I need to do that, which was an emotional reaction that she used to have. I was thinking, um, you know how, the other day I was thinking, about people call it reactive dogs now, rather than aggressive dogs, it's reactive. I was thinking about calling it emotional instead, so my dog's being emotional. <laughs> That's what we say, right? The dog's feeling this. What's, you say, what's going on with your dog? And they go, well, the dog's feeling uh, anxious. And you're like, yeah, yeah. What's going on with your dog? What are you seeing in your dog? I'm seeing my dog feeling anxious. <laughs> and you can watch Jess's face and you can hear the words in her head. It's like, fuck's sake. What exactly is the dog doing, though? <laughs> and then they look at you and they go, huh? And then you might go something like, um, is it pulling on the lead? Is it, is it running away? And they're like, Oh, right, okay. What's um, it doing? Yeah, well, it's reacting to that dog it's just seen and just sitting there. Okay, well, we're closer. <laughs> but we do, we project all the time. And, and that's the thing to recognize in a conversation you have with somebody else, just like you did there, you are not present in the conversation. You're always pattern matching to your own stuff. Very few of us hear what people say. We hear what we hear based on our own experiences. And some things are neutral and we don't react, and some things we do react to. So if, if you're like me, it's kind of unfortunate in many ways because I've got lots of different experiences. So when a client talks to me, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to have some sort of matching experience. And I had to learn early on as a therapist not to go, I know exactly what you mean, me I've been through that, <laughs> me too. Yeah, it's really easy to do me too. And just go, well, I don't know because I'm not them. Jess has gone into a thoughtful mode now. I've just got a thingy message. <laughs> well, I think we should do some, some memory stuff with you. We're going to hang up and we can do some. Hang up. Hang up. <laughs> hey, everybody. Sod off. We're hanging up on our podcast now. Speak to you again later. We'll be different when we get back. <laughs>